Hello, welcome to episode 5 of the BNB Connection. Uh, today's episode is going to be on good versus bad exercises and also best exercise. Uh, with me is Brad Schoenfeld. Brad, do you want to introduce this topic? Yeah, sure. We've discussed over the years uh, how we kind of don't like the terms good or bad exercise. Uh, certainly my one of my mentors, uh, Mel Siff, uh, had coined the uh, phrase, there are, there's no such thing as good, or as a general rule, there's no such thing as good or bad exercise, only poor application and poor performance of the exercise. And I think both of us, uh, to a large extent, concur with that philosophy. Um, so, so with one caveat, uh, it depends on the person, of course, you know. Right. There are bad exercises for some people, but... Um, um, so what would you say to someone who just recently wrote a blog post uh, saying if you could only do one exercise, if you could only do one lift? I think we have to banish that person to the Iron Maiden. <laughs> um, I thought it was funny There's because in that I thought of you and I wrote that because that, those annoy the hell out of you. you know, why? No, but that is actually different. I mean, you, what you proposed was really a different... If that wasn't a good or bad exercise, that's giving someone limitations as to what they can do, forcing them into an exercise. I see a, di a difference there. Well, anyway, I always love these. I love these types of questions because they get me to think. But why the hell would anyone? Has anyone in the world ever been in a situation where they can only do one exercise? Um, anyway, uh, the, yeah, this topic is different. This this topic you see a lot in magazines. Don't do this. Do this or five exercises you should never do, and things like this. And um, well, I want to mention that you and, you and I bo are both inspired by bodybuilding, whereas a lot of strength coaches and physical therapists have never, you know, they've never um, delved into the bodybuilding world much. And they, they take a more, like a, they look at things in a more, kind of like a functional anatomy type, you know, so... I actually wrote an article on T Nation. God, this was several years ago. I remember because I was in Auckland, and I came up with the idea at like ten o'clock at night, and I decided to work on it until like ten o'clock the next morning. I just didn't sleep that night. That's back when I was in my manic mode. But it was called the New Rules of Lifting, and it was one of my favorite articles. But a lot of people only got like halfway through the article and were flipping out on me because I started off explaining why you shouldn't do every exercise. Remember. You remember that one? And and my point my whole point was you could make any excuse to not like an exercise. You could you know, I give me any exercise. The squat I could make a if if you if I wanted to, I could make a compelling case why you shouldn't squat, why you shouldn't deadlift, why you shouldn't bench press. I could also make a very compelling case why you should just depending on how I worded things. So I guess let's talk about what, what are the most demonized exercises. Let's talk about that first. Yeah, and I, I do, before getting into that, want to just point out when you mentioned that a, a lot of people come from a strength and conditioning perspective or a functional perspective, I think that really, that's one of the problems here is that really we should not dictate what someone should do. It's really a, a good 
a fitness professional is going to adhere to whatever the goals of that person are. So yeah, if you're just working, if you're an, a, a strength and conditioning coach for a basketball team, then you're working with a given population and you could say for that population, I don't think these exercises should be done for whatever reason. But to just cast an aspersion on, on the exercise in general really misses out on the point that uh, really training is specific to the individual. So sorry for... No, no, I, I agree. There, but I, that was an important one. So, okay, so what, what exercise are um, most commonly demonized? Uh, the behind-the-neck moves, and I would actually probably give that I would never see a reason to do a behind-the-neck uh, lat pull-down just because uh, you really get the same benefit from pull-down to the front and there's less inherent risk. But for the most part, the, the behind-the-neck uh Presses or pull-downs, upright rows. I wrote a whole article on that for the Strength and Conditioning Journal. Leg extensions, crunches. Uh, we wrote a, uh, a very controversial, apparently controversial article on spinal flexion. Uh, there's just so many dips is when you hear a lot. Pec deck. Okay. Well, let's talk about some of these exercises. The one that cracks me up the most is leg extensions. Um, because... Uh, the, the reason why people will, um, what's the word I'm looking for, like will bash leg extensions, the reason why is they'll say, they'll talk about the stress, the stresses to the ACL, right? Is that what you commonly hear? Yeah. In which case the ACL, they'll, they'll mention like, what, like the tensile forces that are put on the ACL, and the ACL... But what they don't mention is that the ACL, it, it represents only a fraction of what the ACL can withstand. It's like not even, I mean, to not do leg extensions because it's, because of the ACL is not a good reason why, didn't, why you shouldn't do them. I agree totally. First of all, it's based on the premise that in a uh, single joint open chain movement, the hamstrings will not co-contract. The hamstrings actually provide a counter uh, balance to the uh, anterior tibial translation uh, so that without the hamstrings co-contracting with the quads, the ACL is going to bear the brunt of the, uh, of the anterior shear force. But again, as you point out, you're not getting significant, the actual, if you actually measure the shear forces, they're well handled by the ACL, so by healthy ACL. So it really is a moot point, as you point out. So some, now, people, way, some people who... Like you, you take any exercise, and there's going to be a certain percentage of people who don't, who don't like them. It doesn't feel right, uh, and this goes for every exercise. And I think a lot of times, authors, for example, someone who has bad shoulders or a bad back or a bad knees, and they feel a certain exercise is dangerous for them, they just assume, oh, this has got to apply to everyone, so nobody should do this. And that's one challenge we have as fitness writers. And why you should talk to other people and watch the way they train and have a lot of lifting partners and friends and things like that in the gym because when you talk to people you realize not you know the human bodies are very unique and you can't just and people have different goals and I will tell you I I can't you know I have a lot of bodybuilding friends who have been doing exercises for years and these exercises that are you know contraindicated but they've learned how to make it work for them. So there are subtle ways to do exercises, in which case, uh, well, let's talk about the individual exercises. So we were talking about leg extensions. 
Right. Why would you not want to do leg? Where would you? Let's let's maybe it would be a good idea to talk about where where leg extensions would be valuable and where they might not be valuable. So, for example, leg extensions are very valuable in knee re, knee rehabilitation and bodybuilding. Are leg extensions as important for? Would leg extensions be a good exercise for the strength coach who has two hours a week with the athletes? No, it would not because you could be doing quote-unquote more functional exercises that maybe like a, you know squatting or single leg type knee dominant movements however maybe the guy who has terribly weak quads maybe it would be worthwhile for him to do it so that's what I was going to point out yeah, yeah. So, yeah, um, if, so, if someone ha is very uh, just generally doesn't happen but if they're very uh, hip dominant where their their glutes are just really overpowering uh, the quads and conceivably you can you can find the reason there but that's what you hear a lot well I mean what you often hear is well why would you ever do a leg extension because it's the most non-functional exercise and again it's missing we've we wrote the article on our single joint exercises functional it's kind of missing the boat number one you don't look at things in a vacuum you don't look at no one just does leg extensions but you want to even point that out, there was a study by Fitterone back in 1990, the classic study done in the nursing home, nursing home patients on 90-year-old uh, nursing home patients who just did leg extensions, three sets of leg extensions three times a week for eight weeks, and two of the ten uh, subjects were able to throw away their canes and walk without canes. So uh, if you're saying that's not walking isn't functional, I, I would have a problem with that. So, <laughs> uh, so again... Functional. That's the, we could do a whole separate podcast on functional. And I think we will. Um, but uh, but uh, going back to okay, so leg extensions. Why are they a good idea for bodybuilders? If you're already doing squats, what can leg extensions possibly add that squats aren't taking care of? Well, you're uh, focusing. You get more focused uh, um, tension on the quads. It allows you. Number one, it, it can increase the metabolic stress because of the uh, because of the single joint you, uh, movement. You can we've actually discussed this before, but you can um, generate greater localized um, localized pump within those muscles than you can with a with a squat with a multi joint move and greater hypoxia. Yep, greater. So, the, and, and this goes to show you that the you, if you told a bodybuilder throw out leg extensions, they laugh at you because it's a valuable tool. It's not their only leg exercise. They do a variety of quadricep exercises, but they they all love the leg extension. They do it for high reps for the most point. You know, most most bodybuilders will do like four sets of 20 with lighter loads trying to really focus on that constant tension to achieve maximal pump and, you know, burn and occlusion. So, uh, and we talked about last podcast, a recent study that came out. Was it Mia, Mia Mora? What was it? Miyamoto. Miyamoto. Miyamoto, where uh, the leg extension actually um, had greater hypertrophy or, or greater occlusion. It had the same activation throughout the whole quadricep, but it actually got more uh, occlusion uh, in the distal region. Which jives with what bodybuilders will tell you that the leg leg extension is you know good at building the lower quads. 
So there go, there's a reason why you should do leg extensions. If your goals are quadriceps hypertrophy, they're a valuable tool. All right, what about uh, other exercises we talked about? Behind the neck presses and upright rows and behind the neck pull downs. One thing that I've always noticed as a strength coach, a lot of people, you will see they lose shoulder mobility. And it's funny, a lot of things, a lot of things we do, like scapular wall slides, look like a behind-the-neck press or pull-down. And so I remember when I, I used to do behind-the-neck presses all the time, and I read that they're not good for you. I stopped doing them. And then one day I went and tried doing behind-the-neck presses again, and it felt really tight. It just didn't feel right. Well, back when I was doing them, they felt right, but I obviously lost some of my mobility. So I would surmise that there would be a sweet spot between doing an exercise and maintaining mobility without overdoing it to where you're causing damages. Now, Brad, tell me, if I am in this position here, why is this risky? Well, the combination of abduction, shoulder abduction, and external rotation puts the shoulder into a position where it... Um, you call it the high-five position. That's the high-five position, correct. Uh, and studies have shown, a good friend and colleague of mine, Maury Culper, has looked at this, shown that that places the shoulder in a position where it can be damaged more readily. And that goes with pec deck, too, when we do the traditional pec deck in the high-five position. Uh, that's also and then how does a talk about how an upright row is different from that? Well, the upright row, um, because you are in now, this I actually wrote a paper on, uh, actually with Maury, uh, was a collaborator on that. But a, um, a position of abduction and internal rotation beyond 90 degrees puts the uh, rotator cuff in a position where it can be impinged, the supraspinatus tendon can be impinged at the, um, but again, now this goes back to... Well, what did your guys, what did you guys recommend for that if that's a concern? Yeah, what's been shown is that as long as you do not go past, so this really is the move, if you stay within this range, you do not risk impingement. That really impingement is what people do is they do this. They pull up so that the uh, elbows are higher than the wrist, they'll come all the way up and they'll go beyond the 90 degree uh, point. So anywhere between this like 80 to 90 degree, degrees, as long as you're not going past roughly parallel with the ground, you're fine. I recommend using a wider grip as you're doing it, which really forces you You use the closer grip that kind of allows you. Wasn't there you also a study that showed that wider grip activated more deltoid anyway? Or middle delts, yeah. And that's, again, why it places you into greater abduction. And really the benefit, so you want to talk about benefit, why would you ever do that? You can just do a lateral raise. Well, you can use it because it's a multi-joint move. It allows you to increase the amount of weight that you're using above a lateral raise. Thus, you're getting greater mechanical tension. Uh, now, uh, uh, on the muscle and... Uh, Brad, uh, having computer... Yeah, it's, it's working now. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, now, something you just said there struck a chord with me. You're using greater loads, so you're going to have greater mechanical tension. Uh, I do not agree with that. Uh, like on the deltoids, it would be you would look at the load versus the lever length, the distance out 
from the shoulder joint. So with a lateral raise, you could have a very light load, but since it's so far out, you have, if you're creating, calculating torque, you would look at both the moment arm, the moment of the resistance arm, and the load, whereas with an upright row, it's not going to be as far out. If you wanted to know which place more tension on the deltoid, you would, the best way for us to estimate would be to look at uh, muscle activation. However, variety, we talked about variety last week. You're going to activate different... Let me, let me, just, let me just challenge you on that. I would also, I, I have not measured torque on, on the two exercises, but multi-joint moves, just traditionally, you're going to, it increases your ability to, uh, to increase the, uh, the, the overall torque will be great. Now, you could say that other muscles are taking up some of the, the forces there, whereas with an lateral raise, they're all on the, the uh, anterior delt, and you'd have to measure that out, but a chest press is always going to give you greater, you can move more weight. Move more weight, right? But you, as far as tension on the muscles, you think so? You're thinking that yeah, like a, like uh, if you look at, I mean, chest press. Yeah, like you've seen the studies on, for example, bench press, dumbbell bench, and flies. I think they all had similar activation. Uh, I'm trying to think of my uh, my EMG studies. I was. Well, no, so activation is different, though, Brett. Remember again that beyond when you. Activation looks at recruitment. So once you're, you can have full recruitment. That's so. You, if you're just looking purely at, it, at the EMG, that's not really fair because the recruitment doesn't tell you the amount of. But that's our best way to estimate right now. The that's other. Just telling you that you're you're recruiting all the muscle fibers. You still might have a greater load under the fibers at that point. We whether that actually translates into greater. A greater hypertrophic response that remains to be determined. We haven't had any studies that are looking at that. But greater forces, even you can have two different exercises that produce the same amount of activation, but you're still having greater forces acting in one. Because once you max out activation, you're when you say greater forces, do you mean greater muscle forces? Well, correct. Greater that there's the muscles are under greater. A greater load, really. They're they're bearing a greater amount of force through the, so they're they're maxed out. You can max out recruitment so that you cause all the fibers to recruit, but there's still a greater load that's being lifted per fiber area. So I have a whole folder with EMG and muscle force. With isometric exercises, it's very like one to one. There's a almost a perfect correlation. With dynamic exercises, it's different. Uh, and under fatigue, it's not accurate. But generally speaking, EMG activation and muscle force is pretty. It's a pre, it's a good it's a good um, uh, monitor of muscle force. It's our best way, our best easy way to to measure tension on the muscle. If you needed to actually calculate muscle forces, now we're going into very. Um, very advanced biomechanical um, measurements here where you use the most popular way is to use inverse dynamics and muscle modeling in which case now you've got to stand on a force plate you need nine you know like motion you know like cameras around the room picking up motion capture uh, with EMG with everything else and then you're feeding forward information about the muscles themselves and where they attach and things like that and the properties of the muscles and you're using inverse dynamics to try to determine the muscle forces 
and there's a lot of assumptions in there that have to be made. Uh, it's it's a fascinating science, but uh, but that that's actually another topic we can talk about. How you know with muscle forces itself, I actually don't agree with it. I don't think that heavier weight or compound exercises. Uh, would I say you could get the same results doing all isolation movements versus compound? <laughs> That's a tough one because I would say, you know, we always, as strength trainer, I just say, do, do compound movements because you're going to get way better results. If you focus on the bench press, the military press, the squat, the deadlift, the, you know, heavy row or chin-up, you're going to see a lot better results than doing all these isolation movements. But at the end of the day, I think hypertrophy all comes down to what you're telling the muscles to do, which I learned from your article, the three ways. And I think of the individual muscles themselves and how much activation is going on in the different muscles and the, stim the, you know, like the signaling stimuli, the mechanotransduction, and then the, the different pathways and so if you did enough isolation movements to, tar to target, to stimulate all those muscles that I think you could, uh, and, and I, it's funny, I've seen some bodybuilders come back from, you know, I remember looking at certain guys' routines and I'm like, dang, they, and it, granted, they're on a million different steroids, but they do a ton of isolation stuff and, they, and, it, and it works for them. But uh, that's, now we're getting off topic here. We're talking about uh, exercises and contraindicated exercises. We were talking about behind-the-neck presses and upright rows and things like that. All right, let's give a scenario where you would not want to use them versus where you would want to use them. So I can think of training a, an, an athlete who wants to stay healthy. I would never give them upright rows or behind-the-neck presses. I don't know if I'd agree with that. I mean, and again, an upright row is a very safe exercise if done properly. Well, I wouldn't give the standard way to come up. Most well, people... You give that to anyone. <laughs> right. wouldn't have anyone doing it. Well, I would have them stop right. with the arms parallel to 90 degrees. Correct. Um, however, now, I... do that depends on the athlete and what they're looking for. Like athletic, when you're training an athlete, well, I mean, there's it's so much specificity that you're really looking at. And, and things like muscle imbalances and balances and so many other factors that you really need to consider in that. So that really gets very murky. Um, everything gets kind of murky even when you're talking. Obviously, there's even with your uh, general client, you have to look at injuries and other things. But athletes just are, are so specific to a given sport. And, and not only a sport, but a position generally. Often, it's, it's certainly in team sports, the given position that they're playing. Uh, so it kind of gets a little hard to make recommendations there. Well, but I would, my, I guess my point is, where I would employ these exercises would be with bodybuilders looking to maximize hypertrophy in this situation. And then Olympic lifters will sometimes do like behind the neck push presses uh, or, or, or jerks or things like that. They'll, they'll, uh, they'll do various movements that kind of resemble upright rowing. Uh, like high pulls and stuff, in which case they would, most Olympic weightlifters would say that the arms are just passive, you're exploding at the hips. But then I talk to other Olympic, good Olympic weightlifters and say, they say, no, you are pulling with the arms a little bit. So that's a, <laughs> that's its own separate discussion. But it depends on, what I'm trying to say is it all depends on the situation. 
say uh, I would never. There's never a scenario that I know where I would use a behind the neck lat pull down because there's been studies that have looked at uh, lat pull downs to the back versus the front. Uh, the front pull down actually has greater activation of the latissimus dorsi. I don't. I've not seen any studies now. Maybe you can argue that you get slightly different activation. It, it, uh, the very variety within it will slightly. I think the uh, behind activate. the neck worked more mid trap and rhomboid. I don't remember seeing that, but but bottom line is is that to me you start to get into a bad cost benefit there because of how you have to come back to really. First of all, there's issues with the neck push pushing down. I just don't like the movement. What I have a problem if someone thought they can integrate it in the same. Probably not, but it's not really from a everything is cost benefit. I just don't think really there's much at that point. The costs really are higher than the benefits. Okay. But even that, we can argue that it's not not that it's a bad exercise. I just think it's less good. Well, <laughs> so what you said is most people do that to target the lats, uh, and you're actually getting less latissimus dorsi activation compared with front pull downs. But you are getting more activation in other fibers. But most people do them. There might be there are probably other exercises that are better at recruiting the the mid traps and the rhomboids. So, okay, uh, and a couple more topics uh, to discuss. We still haven't broached upon best exercise, but before we talk about that, and we've only got about five minutes left, we didn't discuss spinal movement. Yeah, you um, never want to do those crunches. So. Uh, usually you see articles that are, you know, nobody should ever crunch ever again. Um, I would say this movement was championed by Stu McGill. And then a lot of strength coaches jumped on board. And at that time, people were doing, you know, like we weren't monitoring this. You had bodybuilders doing, God, I've, I've seen cases where they do a, like thousands, by the thousands of crunches, some of them. Uh, in which case, I think that is very foolish. Um, but in our paper, we talked about range of motion, posture, volume, things like that. I myself see no problem if I, for example, lay over a Swiss ball. I'm in some, you know, I'm arched over it into some extension. I put like a 25-pound dumbbell here, and I move mostly at the thoracic spine, and my lumbar spine stays it doesn't move into much flexion at all, but I use a controlled tempo and I, l I lower it slowly. I get to 15 reps and I'm burning, my abs are burning so bad. Uh, people would say, now the argument could be made, well, why not just do an ab wheel rollout? Are you going to achieve any more additional musculature in the abdominal region if you do the dynamic exercise? I would argue yes you would, but you've got to be pretty lean to see, the, the, if you're not lean, you're not going to see that extra hypertrophy anyway. So again, it depends on the population. If you're looking at bodybuilders who want that extra abdominal muscle, then you should probably do it. If you're just, if you're not looking to maximize your hypertrophy, maybe just do core stability exercises. The point is, it all depends on the situation. And by the way, Brett, I think it's also important to point out that it's not like we're huge champions of the crunch. And I think sometimes people think that 
because we wrote this article, that means that, hey, we just sort of had a crunch all day. And, and it really, ju- it came down to what we're talking about now is that the demonization of an exercise that's been a staple in exercise programs wasn't warranted. And based on the literature, it just isn't. Uh, the fact that uh, to say that it, it, no one should be doing crunches or that you should be saving your spinal flexions to tie your shoes simply is not consistent with the literature. And we, I think, very clearly showed that in our article. Uh, which is really no one has challenged any, if anything that we've said. Even even Dr. McGill has come out and said there is no such thing as good or bad exercises when we differ different populations. So hold on, I'm going to play devil's advocate. It isn't consistent with the literature. There's no literature showing that it does that it's not dangerous. The 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 bulk no, of the literature shows that it is dangerous. But we pointed out reasons why you would want to be doubtful of the literature because we have not seen that in humans in vivo we've just seen it with pig spines in vitro and which i don't which think the not, which is not the lit you said the literature does show that the literature the literature shows that an ex vivo pig spine when subjected to many thousands of spinal flexion cycles in a continuous fashion will ultimately herniate and that is very different from saying that the, the lit- there's really no evidence to be pointed out the, a lack of evidence is, does not mean that, uh, so an absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So could it happen? Yes, yeah, we talked about. But uh, clearly, not only did we point out that the literature doesn't show this, there's anything has been very overly extrapolated, what, what uh, the people are looking at, but there is evidence that there is benefits to, uh, so we talk about cost-benefit, that we talked about pumping fluid into the, uh, into the discs, um, the, because they're poorly um, nasty, poor, poor, there's poor circulation to them. So we, we discussed how there actually can be positive uh, factors, not only for the musculature, but the discs as well, from the remodeling standpoint that discs actually do remodel and that it potentially might help in, in strengthening the discs. So, but in the meantime, in the meantime, my position is uh, until more recent, like chalk, I categorize this up onto my shelf as more research is needed. I don't know what to think exactly. I know what Stu McGill thinks. I know what you and I think. I value his opinion very much. I think that if you did a study in humans and and stuck to our recommendations and did pre and post MRIs, you wouldn't see any evidence of additional damage over a control group. But that research is not out there. So in the meantime, you can make your decision and say, I'm either going to play it safe and not do these this exercise, or if I do do it, I'm going to listen to what Brad and Brett said. I'm going to do them mostly in my throat, so my lumbar spine isn't moving to full range of motion. I'm going to limit my volume. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to do three sets of <laughs> a thousand crunches. Uh, when you do them in a controlled fashion and squeeze and, you know, it's a lot harder. You can, you know, you can do them in a way where 20 is hard. And I've taken clients and taught them that. So the 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 level of stress you're putting on the the spine is going to be way less doing 20 compared to a thousand. And you you can do them with very limited range of motion. One study showed that if you limit the bending from 13 degrees down to 11. In one motion segment, you get 50% of the distress, and we're saying, don't. We're saying only use 
a very small fraction of your, so you would have way less stress. I mean, that's just common physics. So, uh, and I agree with everything you just said. Yep. So a couple minutes left. Let's talk about best exercise selection. Um, well, actually, we're out of time. This will be the first one we're going over. But uh, <laughs> I ramble. I'm a rambler. Okay. Uh, best exercises. What's the problem with that, Brad? Best exercise is the same, but visual. Uh, one best exercise for everyone because it will depend upon not only the person, the person's needs and goals and abilities, but also what they're uh, what they're looking to do. Oh, cut out there, Brad. Uh, it was choppy there for a little bit. Um, so repeat that. Yeah, I just said that it really will depend on the individual, what their needs, their goals, and abilities are. To give one blanket statement like that. Squats are the best exercise, or deadlifts are the best exercise, or these are uh, things that you can't determine about the person that you're training. Trying to give one best exercise is, in my opinion, silly. Now, I happen to like these types of arguments. Uh, for example, squats. Maybe I think squats are the best leg exercise, or... Uh, Deadlifts are the best posterior chain exercise or something like that. But again, it, it would depend on the individual. Squats shouldn't be performed by everyone. Neither should deadlifts by everyone. I Would it be okay to say, look, we, we took, I want to know what's the best pec exercise, what's the best glute exercise. I took 100 people and subjected them to muscle activation, and this one averaged out to be the highest. So I can conclude that this is the best exercise for this muscle. But it's not only about activation. I mean, it's about the person. So number one, you have to take into account potential injuries that have been that have happened to the person. Um, are there functional ramifications if that's a goal? So I mean, if you're talking about bodybuilding, then no one exercise is ever going to be optimal to to do everything that you need to work a muscle from different angles and. We discussed this in our in our last uh, podcast. So again, it, to me, it just kind of misses the boat. It's, it's simplistically looking at a very complex topic. So if you're looking for uh, athletes, they'd want to do, you know, they're going to want to look more at the transfer of training. If you're looking at bodybuilders, they're going to want to do the exercises that build the muscle the best. In which case, you're always going to use a variety anyway, because three exercises, well-planned exercises, will be better than one. Power lifters, it all depends on their strength curves and where their strong, where their weak parts are. So the best exercise is all dependent on the individual. And in conclusion, there are no good or bad exercises, just good form versus bad form, and good for the what, good for the person, and bad for the person, or not so good for the person. Awesome. Thank you, Bradley. Uh, we will see you guys next week for episode six.